Good afternoon, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 131. Today, we're back to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and we're going to start in verse 31. The woman at the well has gone back to the gates of her city. She says, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the one we've been waiting for? Verse 30 says, hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. Then the disciples began to insist that Jesus eat some of the food they brought back, saying, teacher, you must eat something. But Jesus told them, I have eaten a meal you know nothing about. Puzzled by this, the disciples began to discuss it among themselves. Did someone already bring him food? To clarify, Jesus spoke up and said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion. As the crowds streamed out from the village, Jesus says to his disciples, Why would you say the harvest is another four months away? Look at all the people coming. Now is harvest time. Their hearts are like vast fields of ripened grain, ready for a harvest. Everyone who reaps these souls for eternal life will receive a reward. Both those who plant spiritual seeds and those who reap the spiritual harvest will celebrate together with great joy. And this confirms the saying, one sows the seed and another reaps the harvest. I have sent you out to harvest a field that you haven't planted, where many others have labored long and hard before you. And now you are privileged to profit from their labors and reap the harvest. Many from the Samaritan village became believers in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Then they begged Jesus to stay with them. So he stayed there two more days, resulting in many more coming to faith in him because of his message. The Samaritan said to the woman, Now we've heard him ourselves. We no longer believe just because of what you told us, but we're convinced that he really is the true Savior of the world. It's important to bear in mind who's talking here. These are foreigners. These are outsiders. These are dogs. These are Samaritans. And they have heard the word at the mouth of a woman of ill repute who shocked them all by saying, come see a man who's told me everything I I've ever done, and if he knows everything she's ever done, he probably knows everything they've ever done with her. And so they come out to see what's going on. They come out to to see who is this person that knows our business like he's been reading our mail. When they find him and he speaks to them, they come to believe he's the Messiah. And they beg him to stay. And so he stays two more days in their village, the guest in someone's home, the home of a nasty Samaritan. His disciples are the guests in other nasty Samaritans' homes. He stays among these detestable, outcast people. And for two days, the message goes out, their hearts are moved, and 
many of them come to believe in him as the Messiah. And in in Israel, among God's chosen people, uh, nobody believes yet. Nobody believes yet. They're asking questions, but they're not being moved to belief. And Nicodemus may believe. But the first to be affirmed by John's gospel that they believed in him are these dirty outsiders. It's a message to the dirty outsiders to come in and be part of God's chosen people. Come join the family. The story starts, this part of the story at least, with Jesus' disciples returning from going into the village to buy food. And they come back and they've got food, but Jesus doesn't seem interested in eating. So they they plead with him, Master, you've got to eat something. We've been traveling all day. We haven't had anything to eat. We got food. Please eat. And he says, I've just eaten a meal you know nothing about. Now, this is one of those devices of John. You and I have read the narrative and we understand what he's talking about. The people inside the narrative who are acting out the story for us, they don't know what just went on between he and the woman at the well. And so they're dumbfounded that he says, I just ate a meal you don't know anything about. What'd she bring him? What'd she feed him? She's the only one who was here. It had to have been her. Master, what did that woman feed you? Jesus clarifies and says, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to bring it to completion. That's a key phrase right there. My will is to do, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to bring it to completion. What does he mean bring it to completion? When is the work of God complete? The work of God is complete in any person's life at the point that they believe. At the point that they believe. God's persuading work, God's calling work. Once I agree to live in a relationship with God, he works through me, but his work on me is over. He's won me. And now he and I can work together. To do the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion is to invite people to join God's family. And once they join, that work is over. That work is accomplished. And about the time he says that, the crowds top the hill, streaming out from the village. And Jesus says, you guys, you guys say, ooh, the harvest is four months away. But I want you to look. The harvest is ripe. Here they come. Now it's harvest time. Their hearts are like vast fields of ripened grain, ready for a harvest. Everyone who reaps these souls for eternal life will receive a reward both those who planted the seed and those who reap the spiritual harvest. I'm calling you into a harvest you didn't plant. It was planted for you. And today, 
I'm going to put you to work reaping these souls. He puts the disciples to work sharing his story with the people who are coming out. He's only one guy. He can't tell everybody his own story. So the disciples are encountering people and saying, yeah, I'm his disciple. And we're out doing this thing and we've seen him do this and this. We saw him turn water into wine. We saw him chase the money changers out of the Jewish temple. I mean, he stood up to the Pharisees and the rulers and the teachers and the priests. And and he's talking about the real God, the living God, the one God. And the Samaritans have been waiting for someone to talk back to the establishment, to open the door so that they could come back into the faith with the people in Jerusalem. And they're convinced he's the guy. And now they're coming to believe in him by his words, by the disciples' words. They're reaping this harvest of souls. Many from the Samaritan village became believers in Christ because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. It wasn't her testimony that won them. It was her testimony that got them to come see. And once they saw for themselves, they adopted their own belief in Jesus Christ. They even say to the woman, you know, now that we've heard him for ourselves, we no longer believe just because of what you told us. But we're convinced that he really is the true savior of the world. We came to check him out because of what you said to us. Kind of scared us. We're, we're as guilty as you were. We did all those things together. And, and so we wanted to know who knew our business. But now, now we believe on our own. He doesn't read our mail. He's the savior of the world. This is the Messiah. That's a big statement of faith for a group of people who've always been outside the church. Let me talk to you for a moment about how this impacts our lives today. I go to church, have for many, many years, and I've been in church leadership I've been in nonprofit leadership. I've worked in church organizations, church educational institutions. And a lot of the time, the language for my lifetime has been those outsiders and us insiders. If only they knew what we know. If only they could experience what we experience. I've heard it asked. How do people navigate life without Christ? But it, it's always people with Christ who are asking that question. People who don't know Christ, most of them don't know any better. They navigate the best way that they can. Some of them think they're doing just fine. I've watched the church talk about those folks out there in so many sermons, in so many church services, and we still do it. We're going to go out and reach the lost as though we're all the found. 
Jesus shows you through John's gospel right here that the found are out there. The outsiders, at this moment in John's gospel, the outsiders are the only found ones. And all the lost, they're back inside that temple court selling animals and beasts to people who've come in for pilgrimage. The church structure is the lost and the outsiders are the found. I wonder if that's still true. I wonder to what extent it's true that those who really recognize and know who God is are those on the outside who still have some fascination with the supernatural. For the last 20 years, I've watched the church and its knee-jerk reaction against anything that it didn't sanction or sponsor. So, there are lots of instances. Let's talk about Harry Potter. The Harry Potter books came out when my children were small. And throughout the church, there was this reaction, oh, don't let your children read that. It's full of witchcraft. There's stories about little children. Then the movie started to come out, and, and people that went to church with me wouldn't let their children go see the movies because, again, it was about witchcraft. Now, I was pastoring a church, and, and it didn't seem like a good pursuit to me to be encouraging people to go see witchcraft movies. So I just didn't say anything about it at all. It seemed like a kind of, it seemed kind of dumb to me to be weighing in on kids' movies aimed at preteens because it's a typical preteen movie, right? The kids who aren't even pubescent yet are going to save the world in their little band of warriors. It's ridiculous. And so I thought, no, I'm not going to weigh in on this. It's ridiculous. Let the people who love it go see it. Let the people who are afraid of it stay away. It'll be fine. And so I left it alone. I didn't read the books or see the movies until my youngest daughter got into reading the books and brought them to me and said, Dad, I think there's things here that you've never considered. Oh, so I started reading the books. The gist, the general gist of the story is that there's this boy, Harry Potter, and the darkness, the evil, attacks him as a child, but can't kill him, but it marks him. He grows up in relative obscurity, hidden by his friends and the good side from the dark side until he becomes a teenager and then the dark side becomes aware that he's there and does everything it can to to get at him, to discredit him, to take his life until there's finally this showdown between good and evil and Harry is stuck in the middle of this showdown. And the only way he can ultimately solve the problem and save his friends from the onslaught of evil is to go face it head on. And so he goes to meet 
the, pro, the, the antagonist, this Voldemort guy who, who embodies everything evil in the universe. And he faces him down, and as he walks into the clearing where Voldemort is standing, Voldemort says, Ah, oh, Harry Potter, the boy come to die. And at that moment, it dawns on me. I know this story. I know this story. He's going to save them by dying for them. And sure enough, Harry takes the best shot the evil one can deliver him, and it kills him. But he's holding something inside. He's holding something unseen to the evil one that will give him his life back, that will, dare I say, resurrect him. So he dies. The price is paid. The evil one is finally unable to hold him anymore. The little bit of evil that the evil one had inflicted on him when he marked him is gone because Harry's died. But then Harry comes back. And his friends are saved. His friends are emboldened. His friends, in fact, take up the battle. And it's not ultimately Harry who strikes the death blow to the evil one. It's all of his friends together. And I closed the last book and I realized it's the story of Jesus just told in kids' terms. In, in crazy, funny, spooky story terms. It's the same story. I could preach the gospel from Harry Potter. I've often thought it would be fun to teach a college course on the theology of Harry Potter or the gospel according to Harry Potter because it's right there. It's the same story. Miss Rowling didn't make the story up. She adapted the story of Christ and the story of Satan and she put it into terms that any kid could grasp and told the story. The outsiders know our story better than we tell it sometimes. And it made a it made an impression on me that that lasts to this day. The world knows our story. It's not the story they question, it's how much do we show them that we believe the story, that we have bought into the story, that we're committed to the story, that the story has in fact changed us. They know the story, they just can't find anybody who's living it. And our funny, prosperity-based religion, our funny, convenience-based religion, where we don't even have church on Sunday, if that Sunday happens to be, oh, let's say, Christmas, the day on which we should be celebrating the birth of Christ. We don't even have church on Christmas because it might be inconvenient to people. When our faith is tested, when our society turns on the church and says, you can't have church now, 
we just cancel? We're so deeply convicted that what we hold and what we share is the word of God to change the souls and hearts and save the lives of men that we'll just cancel church and go virtual and have the preacher in the sanctuary all by himself speaking to a camera and somehow make ourselves comfortable with that. No supernatural, no power, no grace, no saving, protecting, moving, supernatural power of God in our midst. Just compliance with the empire. Compliance with the people who've turned out to all have been wrong. We weren't endangering anybody. Their solution is endangering as many people as the disease. The cure is killing as many as the disease. And they ran us in circles to wear masks and to use hand sanitizer and to stay six feet apart and to not sing in church and then to not have church at all. And we let them because our understanding of God is not supernatural. Our understanding of the church is not supernatural. Those people came out of that village to meet the supernatural God. And he supernaturally moved in their hearts and they believed in him because he showed them the supernatural. Church, wake up. If we don't show people the supernatural God who still saves, who still loves, who still reaches, who still comes into the most untouchable, unrelatable, unwanted places on earth to reach the untouchable, then we're not a church. If we've got walls that divide us from them, the outsiders from those of us who have the truth, then we're a country club, not a church. Today, let me challenge you, because I don't imagine there are anybody, there are any people listening to this podcast who don't consider themselves to be Christians, insiders. Let me challenge you today to walk outside into your workplace, into your job, into your school, into your culture and society and community. And drop the insider business. Walk out into that community as a person who's been feasting on the mission and the calling of Christ himself. Walk out into your world looking for the chance to reach an unreachable one to reach a person you'd never considered reaching out to before. Let me encourage you to live your life today in such a way that the people in the world around you say, hmm, what's up with him? What's up with her? Why are they so nice? Why do they care what happens to me? Why do they bother? 
if you live your life in that kind of supernatural way, people are going to ask why. Why do you do this? Why do you care? Why do you go to this effort? And then you get the chance to tell them why. Because I serve a God who still has supernatural power. I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I am convinced that it is the power of God to save the souls of men.